Welcome to Disciple City Church Podcast. My name is Jerry Wagner, founder and lead pastor of Disciple City Church in Dallas, Texas. Thank you so much for tuning in to our podcast. Our desire is to unleash healthy disciple makers in West Dallas to reach the world. God bless you as you listen and consider subscribing so that you can listen to new messages each week. Thank you and have a God-filled day. Man, can we give it up for uh, the praise team one more time? Hmm. I feel like every week I am just impressed by the diligence and work they put in. They put a ton of work in, a lot of hours that most of them do not get paid for, and they are just generous in giving to us today. Um, My name is Michael McGee. I am one of the elders here at Mercy, uh, Mercy Street, Disciple City Church. Uh, look at the log in your own eye, you know. So, whatever. Uh, one of the elders here <laughs> at Disciple City Church. You can take a seat. You can take a seat. Sorry. Like that back half got the message. Everyone in the front is being super spiritual. Um, <laughs> man talk about when you were younger and like that one song came on that you just all the emotions and you're the one person standing up everyone's looking at shame anyway uh we're gonna get started today i i as as an elder here at mercy street at disciple city church i i do i do mission goodness what do i do anymore uh i do a few things so mission in particular and and that's where we'll be today and so first we're gonna pray and then we'll get into our text so uh pray with me and I don't want to use this as just a transition. Um, I really want to pray for a few things in particular. Um, with your eyes closed, head bowed, I, I want you to take a moment to pray for our city. Our city is about to go through the next two to four weeks, uh, a very uh, tense trial uh, with Botham John and his death, and Amber Geiger, a police officer from the Dallas Force, that shot and killed both of them. Both of them went to church down the street from us, right off of uh, Hampton. And we want to pray for his family this morning as they're about to go through a grueling next two to four weeks. We want to pray as well, even for the officer, um, Amber Geiger. One of the things about this message today, the difficulty of this message today, is the otherness of others. And many of us feel the pain and the twinge, the trauma, the triggering that comes with the death of another black man at the hands of a police officer, the anger, the hope for justice, sometimes denied, many times denied. And what could be a sitting time bomb of a case, we want to pray for our city that in this, the justice of God and the goodness of God would be near to Dallas that his church would be faithful to the mission she's called to in loving those who are oppressed, but also the entire city as a whole as we walk that tension. Pray for our church that God would enable us to walk these next weeks with power, with care, with strength. We want to pray for justice for both of them. We want to pray that our hearts today will be soft to the message that's difficult. It was difficult in Jesus' day. 
It's difficult in our day to care for the other. So, Father, we ask today that your Holy Spirit will work among your people, work in me, as this message has found me being convicted multiple times this week. I pray that your grace would be efficient for us, as it always is, and that we would be partnering with you in that and receptive to your good news and your message today. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know how old some of you are, but if you were not alive in 2003, raise your hand. Okay, nobody. Great. (laughs) May 1st, 2003, President George W. Bush gets in a jet fighter and flies onto an aircraft carrier to make a presidential speech. No other president has done that. It's very classic Bush. Uh, To fly in a jet plane to make a speech that he would later call a mistake. He would call it a mistake because hours before he got onto the aircraft carrier, White House personnel had designed a banner for Navy personnel to hang up above his platform speech, or speech platform. Does anyone know what it said? Mission accomplished. (laughs) Mission accomplished. I'm laughing because of what it is. And so, now, not to make little of war, nor to make humorous the cost of war and the sacrifices, the suffering across all parties, but it was an unfortunately ironic speech for Bush. Because this occurred in 2003, and troops would not be withdrawn until 2011. So picture the scene. Bush knows it's not over. In fact, he would go on to say in his speech, our mission continues, with a big slogan above him that says, mission accomplished. Troops wouldn't leave for eight years, and yet personnel declared mission accomplished. And so it was plastered, emboldened, lettering above him did not have any sort of matching up with what was actually happening on the ground. What was plastered above him did not line up with the troops, and it didn't line up with Bush's speech that he would call a mistake. And yet for this scene in perfectness, more ways than one. So that's what I believe is a really good image for what it means for a church to be caught up in the Missio Day. That is the mission of God. For America, the troops on the ground hadn't caught up with the big old banner yet. And Bush's words had not aligned up with what the slogan was advertising above him. Before the church, the mission of God has already been declared to have been won. God's mission has already been accomplished in Jesus. We see it across the pages of the Bible, the ending of it all. God has begun what he is in process of finishing. He's already dealt the death blow to wickedness and the enemy through the anointed King Jesus. And so we live in this moment right now where Jesus has already brought the kingdom near His reign and the fruit of it are present and among us, especially in this body. We can see fruit of what he's accomplished, but it's not yet finished. And the mission accomplished isn't written in a banner. It's written in the book. And we're living in this tension today where we would even have to discuss what does it mean to do mission. So if you haven't been with us yet, we've been walking through this series of our DNA or what is a healthy disciple maker at DCC. We're exploring what it really means for us to look at our lives and see if we line up with what the Bible prescribes and defines as a healthy disciple maker. 
Today we'll be talking about the missional portion of this. See, at DCC we say that a healthy disciple maker is one who is growing in the gospel in the context of family while on mission. Now, Pastor Jerry gave a couple of sermons at the beginning where it's the content and scope of the gospel. And then last week he gave a really fiery sermon that if you haven't listened to it yet, uh, about family. You should go on our podcast and listen to it. It's really great, really convicting, and hopefully builds you up to do something differently. And so today we're talking about the last portion of that text. That is, while on mission. What does it mean to be doing all these things while on mission? And while on mission refers to the activity of the church, while yet knowing that God's already accomplished the mission, we're working to restore and reflect according to that mission. There's one pastor in New York that says that mission isn't something simply that we do, but mission is more of a posture. It's a posture. What does that mean? The American Chiropractic Association, if you see in the back behind me, gives a definition of what posture is. It's the position in which we hold our bodies while standing, sitting, or lying down. Good posture is the correct alignment of body parts, supported by the right amount of muscle tension against gravity. Without posture, the muscles that control it, we would simply fall to the ground. And so whenever I say that mission is a posture, it means how we hold our lives, how we approach our life, whether eating, playing, working, or resting. Good missional posture is the correct alignment of the church body with the mission of God. Without good missional posture, the church will simply fail at what it's called to do in this world and for the king. And so this posture, this approach to life, is how we look at our individual and our communal lives, what we do as an individual and what we do as a family. And I think that this idea of posture cost, uh, captures what we mean when we say, while on mission. While on mission. And so what I want to explore today is what does it mean to have this correct posture in our lives as we walk about, knowing that the mission is accomplished, but we're on the ground doing the mission. To be on mission is to have a posture of neighborly now while we wait for the not yet. To be on mission is to have a posture of neighborly now while we wait for the not yet. This idea of neighborly now, I think, and, and we read it earlier, is found in this story of the Samaritan, the Good Samaritan, as it's uh, classically called. And so today, we're going to take that, the first step that we're going to do is we're going to look at that passage. We're going to pull it out. I'm not going to just tell you something that I think it should be and not show you in the text where I think it is. We're going to look at the Bible. We're going to look at it, and we're going to see where this is found. And after that, I want to talk about some of the bad posture. Anybody got bad posture in here? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you should have seen me in middle school and high school. I overcorrected so much, I started walking around like this. It was terrible. It was terrible. And then it didn't help that I played uh, defensive line, and so my coach literally said, practice walking in the hallways with a wide base. And so I would practice that, and to this day, there are many times I still far too often walk with a weird wide base. Posture affects everything, and I think it's found in this passage. And so we can have good posture and bad posture when it comes to doing the mission of God. So pick up your Bibles. If you don't have one, there's one in front of you. If you don't own one, that's yours. Take it home with you. It's our gift to you. We're in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. You are right, Jorge. We are in verse 25 to start out with. It kind of sets the context of what we're going to be reading today. So that's Luke 10, 25 through 37. Now the context of this story starts in verse 25, and it goes all the way down to verse 29. There's this legal expert called the lawyer. He's either just someone who is 
inundated in the Torah or the Jewish scriptures. He is an expert in religious law for the Jewish society. And in Jewish society, to be a religious elite was to be the tip-top insider of every category in their society. He's well-educated, and therefore he should know the right answer. And so the text shows us in verse 25 that he comes to Jesus not to really know what Jesus thinks, but to trap him. He knows the answer to his own question before he even starts asking what he's got to do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus, knowing him as a lawyer, turns around and says, well, what do you think? You're a lawyer. And so the lawyer responds in verse 27. He quotes what's called the Shema or the Shema Yisrael. And he recites what every Jewish person would recite every day, twice a day. That is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And then couples, Leviticus 19, a command found there, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This pairing was not unusual before the time of Jesus. It had already shown up, but certainly Jesus and his disciples have popularized these two commandments. And Jesus affirms it in verse 28, if you look there. He says, do this and you shall live. What's interesting is, if you were to look at the beginning of that Samaritan story and look at the end of the Samaritan story, Jesus says twice, go and do this. So Luke, being a master narrative writer, is trying to emphasize this story with two bookends of saying, do this. Do this at the beginning, do this at the end. What Jesus actually is doing, as well as he's referring to the Old Testament, in the Old Testament when God made covenant promises to the people of Israel, he said, if you do this, you shall live. And what Luke also wants you to see here is not only should you do this, but you should know that the person telling you this is the Old Testament Yahweh, manifest in Jesus. You can't unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament. You know who Jesus is because you look at his Jewish society. And you look at his Old Testament, the, the testimony of the people of Israel. And Luke wants you to know, walking away from this, that you should do it. And so what should we do? Let's look at verse 29. After Jesus affirms it, he desires to justify himself. Okay, He's desiring to justify, my, justify himself by saying, well, then who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? He wants to be affirmed by what Jesus says next. However Jesus defines neighbor, he wants to affirm himself in it. He doesn't necessarily want to just get the answer right. He wants people looking at him. So his intent has switched from trapping Jesus to building up himself. He wants to say, yeah, that's what I do. There's a little context to this because who is my neighbor was a common theological debate for Jews. Who is the person I have to extend love to? Who is a person I actually have to care for? And so they would go through the scriptures and argue with one another as to who was neighbor and who was non-neighbor. And so what the Jewish lawyer is trying to say here is he's assuming that there's a non-neighbor. There is someone that doesn't have to be your neighbor in this. And so if we look down right before verse 30, Jesus is going to give us a story to combat the idea or the assertion that there is a non-neighbor in your life. If there is an other in your life that you don't have to care about. It's what the lawyer assumed, and it's what we operate out of many times. That there could be someone in our lives that could be a non-neighbor. Verse 30, Jesus tells a story. It's a familiar story for many of us. There's a certain man going down from Jerusalem. Jerusalem's on a hill. 
17 miles away, he's going to go to Jericho, a really long and treacherous journey. This journey would be matched by many different bandits, rugged terrain. It was not a safe way to go. And he's going by himself back home, assumably. In the process, he's mugged, he's beaten, and left naked. Like, left naked, naked. Okay, just dead body. Boom, right? Just, I just want us to get this image that there is a completely naked, beaten man down the path of two people that now follow him. Two of the religious elites, just like the lawyer who's asking the question. A Levite and a priest. These guys were the tip top of society. They're the most privileged in their society, and they clearly thought it about themselves as well. They saw themselves as religious elite. And both of them see the dead man. You can't miss the naked dead guy on the way home. They see him. They don't just pass by. The text even assumes it. They see him and pass by. They assess the man. They see and assess the man. What they're doing through their mind is the debate that we talked about earlier. Is this guy a neighbor? Is this guy a neighbor? Do I have to do this? Unsure if he's a Jew, and more specifically, unsure if he's worthy of neighborly love. And their judgments, both of them withhold neighborly love to the man. In their minds, they've run the risk matrix, and they've seen that this is more risky than it is beneficial for the man. They run the risk that if they go and touch him and pick him up to turn him on the other side, see if he's alive, that they'd be unclean. For seven days, they had to be cast out of the society. That's the risk they run. Pretty low risk for someone who's dying. But their religion and their status is so important to them that to touch him would make them unclean. To help a Gentile makes them unclean. And so the uncleanliness of the situation makes it unworthy of capitalizing on it. The man just isn't worth it. Verse 33, a Samaritan appears. Now, if you've heard a sermon before about this, you might have heard this before, so sorry if it just echoes. But Samaritans and Jews hated them, each other. They hated each other. Extreme animosity. Extreme animosity. I'm not going to go into all the history, but essentially, one considered the other half-breeds. The other considered the other not true Israel. It was, it was a mess. They fought, killed, maligned, made laws against each other. They were the most opposite of each other. And so for Jesus, who is a Jew himself, to now set up the protagonist as a non-Jew, more specifically a Samaritan, was shocking. The ultimate other now appears to show love to the complete stranger. The Samaritan doesn't question if the man's worthy of love. He responds in the now. He gives neighborly kindness and compassion. He bandages him up. He throws him on his own mode of transportation and he takes a risk in all this because it could be a trap. It's not just so much he's going to be necessarily unclean, but the robbers could be still waiting around to get them next. This could be just a trap, another way for him to die as well. Or if a Jewish man spots him and assumes that he's killed the man, if he's a Jew, he also runs the risk of being pursued as a criminal himself. But he considers it worth it. Jesus turns back to the lawyer and has switched from who is my neighbor to who was a neighbor. This is verse 36. He shifts from a legal question 
of who do I have to love to more of a heart question, who was the neighbor? And the lawyer, knowing the answer, still doesn't have the capacity in his bitter heart to say the Samaritan. He says, the guy who had compassion. And Jesus says, like we said earlier, go and do likewise. To be on mission is to have a posture of neighborly now as we wait for the not yet. Looking at the Samaritan, I want to look at what does it mean to posture yourself as a neighborly now or having a posture in a life of neighborly now. By neighborly, I mean this. He saw himself as a neighbor. I have two boys, and so now I'm just used to all the kids' shows in the morning, right? 6 a.m., Sesame Street is now the jam because Oliver also enjoys TV now, which is so sweet. It's so good because I just, that is not the first thing you want to do in the morning is like one kid's enjoying it, the other kid's just everywhere. Oliver kind of watches it. He likes uh, live action. He doesn't like cartoons, but if there are people on the screen, loves it. One other show we've tried, Mr. Rogers, right? Great show. Wrong question. He says, will you be my neighbor? That's not the question you should ask. You should make a statement, I am the neighbor. That's what the Samaritan does. He doesn't ask, will you be my neighbor? He doesn't bet whether or not you want to be his neighbor. He says, I am the neighbor. He now identifies himself. It's in his identity that he is a neighbor. I am the one called to love as neighbor. It's a major shift from asking, should I love them, to I am one who loves. Because the Samaritan saw himself as a neighbor to all, all he encountered were to be loved, to be served. He was neighborly because he identified himself as neighbor. And this wasn't just some theoretical, theological, I really enjoy loving other people. He's meeting them in the moment. He sees someone in front of him in the now. It's not a a, a good just vibe about all people. It's something when he sees it, he meets it. When he sees it, he meets it. It's in the now. He postured himself in a way that he saw people in front of him. It's difficult in our society to even see people in front of us anymore, to get off of our phones, to be able to see the person who's standing in front of us, to have conversations anymore without thinking of the next thing we're going to do. But a neighborly now sees a person in the moment. This is the sort of posture that Jesus says, go and do. We are neighbors in the here and now. And I don't think that all this is necessarily controversial for people who've been in the church for a minute. You've heard this before, that we should love all people, that you're supposed to be a neighbor. We've heard a sermon if you've been here before. And this may be unfamiliar for you, and that's not me looking down on you. That's just, it's common talk in the church. Now, it's not common practice. Many of us have seen many churches and many church members not act like this at all. But to hear this from a stage is not necessarily controversial. You've heard it before. And so many times, because we get so used to it, we don't freshly apply it to ourselves. And so I think in order to better understand what good posture actually looks like, look at bad posture. (laughs) You really know if you have good posture, if you see someone with really bad posture. And that's what Jesus, I think, allows us to see in the other characters in the story. So we want to look at today, what does bad posture, bad missional posture look like in the Christian's life? In what ways are we holding or positioning our lives? In the ways that we eat, play, work, or rest? That is not aligning up with what the body has been called to do as the bride of Christ. Bad posture. In particular, I want to look at three bad postures I think that we can identify in our local body, in our local body, including in myself. That is the bad posture of othering, a bad posture of opportunism, and a bad posture of onlooker. 
othering, opportunism, and onlooker. Let's look first at the bad posture of othering. We see this in the Levine priest. It's kind of one of the most identifiable things going on. Is that they are othering the person. They are othering the dead man. They no longer have the capacity to see the inherent worth in another person. They no longer can see themselves in the other person. They are so otherly in their otherness that's unrelatable. It's so otherly for them that they cannot relate anymore to see themselves as another image bearer of God. We can no longer see that God's work in them is still a potential. They're outside the mission of God. And in Western culture, Western culture, we have an atmosphere of othering. You don't have to be on social media for longer than five seconds to see another post about an other person where someone is literally building their platform on othering other people. We live in a battleground where the conservative right and the liberal left seems to be the great conflict of God. And it's so American of us to think that the greatest mission for us today is the elections. America isn't the center of the world. But Christians drink in the Kool-Aid, although it will be the hugely disunifying, we think that this is the great conflict of God. And it's based in othering other people. And myself included, we're tempted to build an entire identity on who we are not. We no longer see the other's humanity and their need for restorative justice, much less see our part in playing them to come back into alignment with the body of God or to be welcomed into the covenant of God. And, you, and I said it earlier, but I think that this is really of our day that social media influencers are building huge platforms off of how well they can out-other other people. Things go viral because of how well someone others other people. And it trickles down to, really, for us, and I'm not, there's no one in here I'm pointing fingers at, but I think it trickles down for us Christians that we are no longer able to see other people and identify ourselves within them. We're unwilling to submit to the nudge of God because we've othered them so far away from the mission of God. Now, I'm not encouraging traumatic, triggering, toxic relationships. And I'm not saying you should agree with the people that are the other in your life. And I'm not saying you shouldn't prophetically speak out against injustices. You've heard it from this pulpit, from myself personally. You should speak out. But to other them and not see the inherent worth of the image of God in them is tragic. I'm saying that we need to reevaluate if we boxed someone out of the mission of God. One theologian says you can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out God hates all the same people you do. Good God. You can safely assume that you've created God in your own image when God hates all the same people you do. And so asking in this you can safely assume that the mission of God has been reorganized around you if it's exactly how you picture the mission of God. 
if you have redefined what the mission of God is based on your preferences and your experiences. We have othered people so far away that we can no longer see the inherent worth in another person. Opportunism. Opportunism. That's the next bad posture. Now, the word opportunism already comes with a negative weight in our society. To be opportunistic is not a positive thing. If you put it on your LinkedIn profile, take it off. You don't want to be known as that. It's not really great. Because Merriam-Webster defines it as exploiting opportunities as they come with little regard to principle or consequences. It means how to take an opportunity for oneself at the expense of others and systems. Take it off the profile. Don't say you're opportunist. It's not a self-starter. It's not the same thing, right? Slightly different for us. If you look at the Samaritan story, the priest and the Levite were looking only for the right opportunity. They had a definition of what the right opportunity was to serve in. For we who are participating in the mission of God, we are too tempted to bend to a posture of opportunism. We too, like the lawyer and priest, are always tempted to look for opportunities. It's in our language and Christianese where we say looking for gospel opportunities, which actually means waiting for good opportunities or gospel opportunities. And this waiting is contingent on when it's best for us or more when it looks best for us. There's a missionary, I'm reading his book, it's called Evangelism as Exiles, and he talks about this concept where he's concerned about the Western church, the terminology of sharing the gospel, sharing the gospel. He writes that what something may have been just simply semantic has gone from just language to being a full-blown strategy. Sharing the gospel is a very common term we use even here, and I'm trying to correct myself based on what I'm about to say, but it's, it's another way of saying telling someone the gospel. But the term sharing the gospel is not found in the New Testament. There is no instance where Jesus shared the gospel, nor the believers in Acts or Paul. No, the words in the Bible are preach, proclaim, testify, declare. These words are very different than share. Clark says, What started as a subtle change in terminology resulted in a massive shift in our whole, evangel- uh, whole ethos of evangelism. That's because sharing typically involves the act of giving something to someone who desires it. And when it comes to passively waiting for the gospel opportunities, we submit the call of the Great Commission to the will of those who are ill-disposed to our message. We have, in turn of waiting for the gospel, we are waiting for the best opportunity. You're waiting for opportunities to share the gospel based on someone who is our anti-Christ. You are submitting the Great Commission to someone else who doesn't want to hear it already. And so you're waiting. And this waiting has turned into where we are waiting for when it looks best for us, where we're not going to ruin a relationship or someone doesn't like us anymore. Can you imagine how many stories in the Bible we'd lose because someone waited to tell the gospel? Peter didn't wait. He just told them how it was. But we share the gospel, and so we're waiting on someone to get ready for the gospel. And it's become an out for us to actually tell them the gospel. We are waiting waiting for the right opportunity to do mission. We are waiting for whenever that moment of justice feels right and when everyone else is tweeting about it. We're waiting for whenever it actually looks best for us instead of actually standing up for it. We're not willing to risk our own assets, our own image, our own time. And can you imagine where the gospel would be if that's what it was actually supposed to be about? It would be 
difficult to find it in the Bible where Jesus shares the gospel. It said he busted up into cities and proclaimed the good news of God that the kingdom was near. And then they killed him. That's the story of the Bible, right? They killed him. And we have interpreted it to mean we should wait for the right time whenever someone's just ready and they go through transition and it's perfect to share it then. But when God said, share, no. He said, proclaim the gospel. Tell them the gospel. That's not to say you shouldn't be praying and asking for God to cultivate something in their heart. That's not to say that there's not right moments when you should tell them the gospel. It's saying that we should evaluate if our sharing the gospel is just an out of not actually telling someone the gospel. And that's difficult for us to realize. In Western culture, you're waiting for someone who is completely about to jettison Christianity. You're waiting for them, for them to tell you when it's right to tell them about it. Whether it's the progressive left who wants you to reinterpret your faith based on their secular principles, or it's the conservative right who's telling that Jesus is draped in the red, white, and blue. They are both jettisoning Christianity, and you're waiting on them to be ready for the gospel. And Jesus just doesn't do it that way. He tells the gospel. I want us to understand that gospel opportunities will decrease as our country continues in post-Christendom. It will continue to decrease. They will be less and less, and our posture must be one of making the moment of now. Our testimony, our testimony must be testified when people don't want to hear it. Our gospel message must be told to those who are going to scoff at you. And our gospel actions of justice must be stood for even when it's unsexy to take the Christian position that doesn't line up with the activists you learned from. You have to take in the consideration of the word when and instead interpret it by the Bible and say, that's what I'm going to stand for. That's what I'm going to proclaim. That's how I'm going to to do it. We stand with and posture ourselves in the neighborly now that is based around a crucified king, and we're willing to be crucified with him. We're not looking for opportunities to be exalted. We're looking for opportunities to exalt him. What was originally, I think, just semantics, no longer is it concern for them. It's now concern for us. We no longer fear God. We fear them. It's no longer fear for them. It's fear of them. And we have to reinterpret, why, why am I always waiting? In and of itself, to wait on the Lord is not wrong. But concern for them quickly turns into fear of them. We have to look at ourselves and say, what's going on? Why haven't I taken that step of justice? Why haven't I taken that step of standing up for someone? Why haven't I taken that step of telling them the good news of Jesus? Is it concern for them? Or is it fear of them? The third and final bad posture that I want to look at today is the posture of onlooker. The posture of onlooker is the, in the opposition of the neighborly now. We see this in the Levite and the priest against. It's very obvious what they did. They just looked at the guy. They see the half-naked, beaten-up, bleeding-out guy, and they just walked past in our context, the onlooker posture is only amplified by social media, where activism has indeed in great ways been accelerated by videos and images. What was and has been an incredible tool to hold oppressive systems and people 
accountable has proven to stunt our ability to serve in the here and now. There's an element of neighborly concern, but now mission has been abdicated to simply posting or reposting videos, images, or slogans. For someone to choose in up, uh, to engage in up-close and personal service or telling of the gospel runs the risk of not being seen by the internet. And that is a heavy risk for us. You can see it uh, even recently this week, um, and you see it in, unfortunately, way too many videos or stories where people view a crime instead of intervening to help. In New York this past week, a young man, Cassim Morris, actually was in a fight with someone while dozens of people watched, dozens of youth watched, and then he was fatally stabbed, and he bled out on the street while everyone filmed him. In the church, we film services, we film acts of kindness, sermons, get out these slogans or quotes, but to engage in frontline missional living seems like a cost too heavy to bear sometimes. That other people won't see it, that other people won't like it, but our Father in Heaven does see it. And I don't think it's necessarily that we've always taken the active position of on looking, but I think that we've been conditioned out of the worth of doing things without other people seeing it. We see how culture celebrates people with platforms. And we celebrate them, but neglect our own opportunity to be the missionaries that God has called us to be on the front line. We're tempted to trade the glory of man with the glory of Christ. We'd rather invest hard hours to be insta-famous or an influencer than sacrifice hours that few people will ever know about. And that's not to say that people aren't moved by social media towards Christ or towards things that he cares about. But I am suggesting that many of us are pursuing a foreign missionary or mission living that's being defined by society and not by our Lord. A neighborly now is not satisfied with looking on. A neighborly now engages now. And we have to ask the question, how can you love the person we know on the phone, but not the person you see in person? How can you love someone that you know through the phone, but not someone you actually see in person? I would suggest that you can't love well on the phone if you can't love the person that's next to you or the person you dislike, or the person that's other than you. And so, we see that mission is terribly difficult for many of us, I think, because we have not yet to see that the half-dead man is Jesus. We can no longer see that to do unto others is to do unto Jesus. That to care for our enemy is to care unto Jesus. To have solidarity with the oppressed, indeed, but also those who are enemies, is something that Jesus did. We are the enemies of God prior to his reconciliation with us. And Jesus is the man in the pit. When we see someone who we know God has called us around, and maybe you haven't heard you know, the voice of God that says you're called to, we're still responsible as neighbor, the identity as neighbor to love them. And so for many of us today, to switch the story around again, we have not relished in the fact that as that dead man, Jesus came along and he saw us in our blood, our filth, our nakedness. And Jesus, in establishing his own kingdom 
of outsiders and misfits rescued us when we were eternally other and brought us back into relationship with him that we might be those who are a part of a fantastic life where we are restoring the world back to itself. The not yet will be realized. There's a day wherein Jesus is going to sit on his throne and every injustice and every otherness will be disqualified. Jesus is using you today to restore the world back to himself. You live in this tension of not yet. You are the neighbor. You are the one that's called to do the things that look not too sexy on social media, not too sexy for our society. You're not going to be esteemed for being crucified with Jesus. He was lynched as an outsider to his society because he loved rebels and thieves. Those who were completely outsiders of your own friend group. He loved them and he loves them and you are the neighbor that's told to meet them. And we get to participate in this huge reconciliation of God where God is bringing heaven to earth and you are called as the missionaries who are neighborly and are living in the now where you see the opportunities in front of you and you meet them directly, head on. Not because you ask, who is my neighbor, but because I am the neighbor. Let's pray. Father, we testify that it's hard to love the other. It's hard for me to love people I disagree with politically, people I see that hurt my friends, people I see that oppress and push marginalized people out and down, and the only thing I want to do is prophetically speak against them, but I don't want to consider them my neighbor. I confess that in my own heart that this is a hard lesson. But Lord, teach me the tension, teach us the tension of prophetically speaking up but seeing the inherent worth in the other so that we might be this radically different community that's not lining up perfectly with one side or the other, one that's allegiant to Jesus and his ministry, his kingdom, one that's utterly different than this world. Help us tell of the gospel. Help us do acts of justice. Help us care for our neighbor as a neighbor because you see us and you love us. And you saved us when no one else saw it. Help us have the same posture of our lives to live in this neighborly nowness that meets people today. Father, enable our church to care for what you're doing and be excited for what you will do because you will accomplish your mission. You have accomplished your mission. And we praise Jesus for that. Amen. Thank you again for listening to Disciple City Church Podcast. Until we meet again, Shalom.